Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from, of all places, a different place, not, not Santa Barbara, California. I'm coming to you from Santa Monica, California, which is where I'm spending about half my time these days. Long story, but, uh, you know, just trying to mix it up a little bit. By the way, if any of you uh, listeners out there are in Los Angeles, Los Angeles area, and want to potentially uh, be contacted for a meetup or something uh, in the area, shoot me an email at buck at wealthformula.com. Before we start with today's interview, just uh, want to remind you that there's a website called wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com is where all the resources are that come along with this podcast exist. And it's where the podcast lives. It's where all the lists that you can join if you want to be part of this community exist, including the Accredited Investor Club. So that is a place that you want to check out. It is wealthformula.com. Now, I want to talk today about uh, a little bit more about decentralized finance. You know, we have been talking quite a bit recently Again, about cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all that stuff. And the other buzzword that comes up a lot is decentralized finance, a.k.a. DeFi. So, you know, distributed ledger technology, as you know by now, hopefully, uh, is creating some problems for the old guard. You know, the OG banks, the traditional financial markets, You know, the young guns creating all of this technology are really, they really are shaking things up. But, you know, you can bet that the traditional guys who've been making millions and millions and billions of dollars off of the old system aren't going to give up that easily, right? The old guard also has something else on their side. They have the financial regulatory system. You see, decentralized finance again, a.k.a. DeFi, is very appealing. But it is also not always terribly legal, at least the way it's done right now. You see, let me give you an example. You know, frequently individuals who own cryptocurrency, um, they are making, you know, these decentralized swaps, one token for another on these uh, decentralized platforms, and no one has any idea what's going on. In fact, it is, frankly, virtually impossible for even an agency like the IRS to track these kinds of trades. And, 
You know, many people have millions and millions of dollars stashed in this underbelly of this decentralized economy. Now, the problem with that is, you know, these trades and stuff like that and not reporting, it's all illegal. In fact, gosh, I mean, it's like a felony. So I, I personally wouldn't recommend living like that myself. That's a little bit too, boy, that's beyond the bleeding edge right? That's a decaying edge. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend going there. And uh, I would just say that I would not recommend betting against regulators and the U.S. government in the long term because you risk going to jail. Nevertheless, DeFi and related technologies do offer so many tech technological advantages uh, to consumers that you know, really make transactions efficient. They cut out the middleman and they're quick and inexpensive. You just go back and listen to the interview we did with the INX guys, right? I mean, there, there you go. In fact, I would argue that when technology this powerful comes down the pipe, it will prevail one way or another, right? It just, it just makes sense. But practically speaking, how is that going to look? That's the question. How is it going to look? Because it's not going to look entirely one way or the other. It's not going to look traditional anymore. It's not going to look the way the DeFi people um, think it's going to look either. And and it's tricky to know because we're really in the early days of this, um, you know, of DeFi and of, of distributed uh, ledger technology in general. Now, my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, guy by the name of Brian Harcher, comes from the very traditional financial system holding positions um, as you know, a top executive at some of the largest banks in the world. Uh, yet, you know, he sees a disruption coming. He's not denying that. He believes he knows uh, where that technology approximately will meet traditional finance and regulators straight on. So really interesting and financing, fascinating stuff to watch. Um, it's happening very quickly. The world is changing, so you may want to know more and, you know, see what an expert in this area has to say. So when we come back, Brian Hartzer. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility, it protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula Podcast is Brian Hartzer. Brian is the chairman of a fintech startup, Before Pay, 
and a senior advisor to Sayers, an investment and advisory firm, and Quantium, a Sydney-based data science company. He's also author of The Leadership Star, which we will talk a little bit uh, about later in the show. But uh, Brian, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Oh, thanks. It's it's uh, great to be here. So, you know, Brian, I, you know, obviously you've done a lot of things. Uh, you've, you've been involved uh, at high levels and as an executive and in financial institutions and all that. One of the things that uh, my audience is going to be very curious about is, you know, this technology, sort of the big phrase, you know, decentralized finance or just DeFi. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what exactly this you know, technology is uh, and how it's uh, potentially altering the, uh, you know, the current banking system? Sure. Well, let me talk about DeFi, but um, I might just go a little broader first to put it in a bit of context, if that's, yeah. if that's all right. Yeah, I mean, I think of course. we're in an incredibly, um, so I, I was uh, previously CEO of Westpac, which is one of the world's biggest banks. And going back 10 years ago, we were looking at the the growth of technology and how it was changing finance and concluded that this is one of the biggest changes periods of change for finance that we've seen in decades. Mm -hmm. And, and broadly there's two reasons for that. So one is on the demand side, um, the way customers want to be served. And we've seen with COVID, the acceleration of people moving to digital channels um, has been huge. People are likewise experiencing new uh, businesses like, Uber and um, they're using Afterpay to buy their fashion. They're using Canva to create their their presentations and they're expecting that everything they do in life is going to be incredibly easy. And so that's, that's changing what people expect of their financial institutions. And then on the supply side, which is predominantly about the technology side, you have standardized platforms that are bringing down cost and allowing new competitors to come in and then you also have new technologies um, like the blockchain, which essentially allow information to be stored outside of the control of one central authority. And so what DeFi is, is sort of putting those things together and saying, well, what if we don't have to rely on a central bank or individual institutions to tell us how much money we've got and where we've got it and when we can transfer it. What if we embed that technology broadly in the blockchain to allow people to run their money essentially on, on autopilot? And will that allow us to bring down costs and bring down, for some people, it's this idea that you won't have the oversight um, that, that regulators and banks would have of transactions and what's going on. Um, now, I personally uh, think a couple things about this. W one is I think betting against regulators and governments to be able to keep an yeah. eye on what's going on in financial services is is a bad bet. I, I think yeah. generally um, governments are going to win is is my view. Mm -hmm. um, however, there there are some really interesting concepts that this creates. And um, one of the ones which I'm sure you've probably talked about in the past, this idea of, of smart contracts. Sure. Um, and when I've thought about this, it, I, I think if you think about it as to what's the actual problem that you're solving rather than is this a cool technology, there are definitely examples of places where there are middlemen taking cuts along the way of financial services 
which could potentially be taken out. And my, my personal favorite example is music, where you think about the uh, royalties that get paid from, say, a radio station up to a middleman, to another middleman, to another middleman, to, a, um, to an album company, which eventually trickles down to the artist. Um, it, with decentralized finance, you could theoretically get rid of all those middlemen and allow people who legitimately want to pay to use a digital asset like a song pay that money just purely directly to the artists that created it. And, and um, I, so I think that there's some interesting developments in yeah. this, but I think this idea that the financial system is going to break down is, is probably fantasy. Yeah. You know, and, and along that lines, when you talk about all those middlemen and the commissions and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, I would also think that, uh, you know, you being part of, uh, previously of, of a very large uh, traditional bank, I mean, that's probably not viewed as a particularly favorable uh, technology if, you know, if, if your business is, is banking, right? I mean, financial institutions, I mean, largely run on those kinds of, uh, those, those kinds of transactions. Is that, is that fair? Well, I think there is a sense, a lot of people make the assumption that banks are afraid of this and that it's, you know, that they're fighting it. Personally, that was not the case for me because I think there's so much of the business is in legitimate needs of businesses and consumers to do things. They're going to continue to need banks. So I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about that, but I did think, gee, this is quite interesting, particularly as it potentially takes cost out of the system. I mean, banks spend huge amounts of money maintaining all sorts of infrastructure that new technology can potentially cause to, to be reduced in cost. And so I think there, there is a potential transformation of the cost side of the banking industry, which, which this stuff could enable. Um, you know, it, when you talk about, um, you know, you talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, regulators and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, betting against the regulators is not a good bet. Um, yeah. there are, I mean, and, and, and I, th- I think that's a reasonable thing to conclude. Um, let me ask you, is it, uh, you know, there are projects, there are protocols that are trying to work within, uh, the framework. Um, you know, I know in particular, even in, in protocols specifically, uh, that I, that I have an interest in like, uh, Hedera that's working with institutions and that sort of thing where they're taking a, a significant, um, you know, they're spending a lot of time on compliance. Do you think that those kinds of things are going to pay off for, you know, the cryptocurrencies and the ledgers that are, are actually paying attention to it? So I think there's no question that something is happening with crypto um, in a lot of respects. I mean, and then, as I say, there's a lot of legitimate use cases like, um, international trade, for example, or foreign exchange, or these other things that are very costly that can be re-engineered. And as a result, I think that they're, from an investment point of view, investing in the infrastructure of crypto in all its different ways seems to me generically like a good idea. The difficulty I certainly have is judging which of these things is going to be the one that works. Um, When I was at Westpac, we made an investment in Coinbase uh, Mm -hmm. very early on that did incredibly well. Um, And and my rationale on that, I remember having the conversation with the CEO at the time of Coinbase was, look, I I don't really know whether Bitcoin is going to work or Ethereum is going to work, but I can see that something's going to happen here. And you guys seem to be the best prepared to play that whatever ends up happening. And I think for an investor, that's, that would be my personal tip is don't bet on the exchange, but you know, picks and shovels at a gold rush was my, my rationale. 
Um, to, if you would, um, and I, I want to get to before pay in just a moment, but let's let's kind of you know again continue to outline sort of the um, so how does how would de- decentralized finance in you know the way you think about it with regulation and all that how would it function like I mean because now you're not talking about having a Chase or Wells Fargo or you know the bank that you're involved with in Australia you're talking about a decentralized system so how how does that look and how do yeah. you regulate something like that yeah well the interesting thing is as people are thinking this thing through there's been some interesting papers written recently about the fact that actually you still end up having some level of centralization sure. in terms of the tools that people use the clearing houses where they um, keep track of what's going on or can access each other marketplaces and the like so i think it's um i can't quite get my head around how you couldn't end up needing some form of central coordination. And once you have that, I think you have an ability for regulators one way or another to keep an eye on what's going on. So, um, so I do think there's going to be some, I don't, I don't think we know what they are yet, yeah. but there's bound to be some sort of platforms that, that emerge in this. So really the, the thought is that technology realistically is not there to, uh, may not be there to replace the, the banking players, but to make the system more efficient. Quite potentially. Yeah. And, and I think there'll be winners and losers in that. Sure. Um, you know, I, I don't think you necessarily end up with the same number of banks doing the same amount of things with the same relative profitability. Uh, I think there are going to be winners and losers. What, it, what is your thoughts on the fed and, you know, the, the federal reserve banks, the, you know, the, the decentralized uh, tokens and those kinds of things, what role do those play? Hard to say. I mean, it, it seems to me like the Fed is really focused on the money supply generally mm-hmm. um, and keeping an eye on local and regional economics and, and having input um, into those mon- macro monetary decisions. So I, I wouldn't necessarily see the Fed there. I think you've got other regulators. Um, the SEC is an obvious one um, that will will take more of an interest in it uh, over time. Oh, no, but it is specifically, you know, you, you're, we're hearing a lot about decentralized um Tokens, uh, the the, the uh, central I, bank uh, uh, tokens, and I'm just trying to figure out like kind of what that role in your view. Are you, know, are you talking be, about non fungible tokens here? No, no, I'm talking about like um, uh, the decentralized um, the, the the U.S. dollar, the, like local. Oh, I see. Sorry, it's crypto crypto dollars and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think um, I haven't thought deeply about this, but to the extent that I have, I, I think a, a, a digital dollar. Um, a, a digital pound. I think those sorts of things seem to me like the logical extension. Why would you continue to print physical money if you had confidence in in um, the reliability and the and the security around a digital dollar? Yeah. I think that's certainly um, a, a likely development. Although I would, one might argue that you know we already have credit cards and other kinds of uh, digital forms of money and largely it's not a cash-based society right so maybe it's uh, again just an efficiency issue yeah i mean i think that's the well the debate becomes do they want to have visibility on where the money is going i mean the right. advantage obviously of physical cash is that um for some people is that it's portable and you don't necessarily it's untraceable yeah. um so the question is is there a legitimate need for untraceable currency um and and that could be a digital dollar right um, so let's t- talk a little bit about before pay. Uh, this is uh, yeah. your company. T- where you know what was the idea? What was the problem that's solving? Yeah. So um, 
it's, we, we call it a pay on demand service. And essentially this is the recognizing that there's a huge portion of people who live paycheck to paycheck and don't necessarily have access to an overdraft line or a bounce protection or whatever it might be for, from a traditional bank. And so want the ability to take a very short term loan when they get an unexpected expense come along. And um, the, the other part of the idea was that payday lenders who are out there, who a lot of people go to are really a pretty egregious business. I mean, when I was at Westpac, we stopped funding those, that industry altogether because we were really uncomfortable with their, behavior. Um, mm-hmm. You can get people into a debt cycle and so on. So the idea of before pay was to interrupt that idea by having this notion that you can take a short-term loan, but you have to pay it back when your pay comes in. So as soon as your pay comes in, the money is debited plus a small fee. And and then that's it. So you can't, uh, as we say in the industry, revolve the debt. You can't accumulate more and more debt. It's a one-off. You pay a transaction fee. That's it. And, and we felt that that was a nice way to solve a genuine customer need. You know, someone's car breaks down or their registration bill comes in or they, they get an unexpected bill or they've got a medical bill or something and suddenly they need some money, but they don't have the ability to go to a bank and get a loan. We don't want to send them to a, a payday lender or a, a loan shark. And so this is a nice um, ethical way to, to solve that issue. And using technology, we can make the, you can sign up in five minutes and um, and you can have the money in your account instantly. So it's, it's quite convenient. This is not really related, I guess, to, you know, the central, uh, you know, the decentralized finance per se, or would you say that it is kind of an arm of that? No, I, no, it's a, it's a different thing. It's all part of the, the broad sweep of the new technologies that are becoming available because of the advances in technology though. Right. Um, how about, you know, I think there was also on the before pay, there's some use of artificial intelligence. You want to talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, well, I mean, we're making a credit decision. So we've got to have a look at the transaction um, history of people and, and come to a view as to their credit worthiness for a short-term loan. But the other piece that we use artificial intelligence for is to understand when people get paid, how frequently they get paid, because we're essentially relying on the predictability of their income stream to come in Um, and artificial intelligence has made that very possible. It sounds like a really simple thing, but when you actually look at the complexity of the different ways people get paid and how often they get paid, it turns out to be a reasonably tricky uh, analytical problem to solve. Are are these algorithms a lot different from, you know, the typical automated stuff that, you know, somebody's applying for a credit card, they find out within a few minutes, is it a lot different from that or is that? It's along the same lines, but the technology that, that, people use for that sort of analysis keeps advancing. And so we're using the latest tools, which have made it a lot easier and allows us to give people an instant decision. I want to shift gears a little bit um, because you're, you know, you're obviously um, as a former CEO of a major bank and all that, you're pretty plugged into the economy in general and take this opportunity to kind of get your sense of what's going on. Uh, you know, your forecast for uh, the economy and inflation in 2022, the Fed obviously looking to raise rates potentially in March. How do you see all the economy right now in the big picture? The way that I think about this is it's like someone's chucked a big rock into a pond and you've just got all these different uh, parts of things going up and down. And the Fed is sitting there trying to, you've got supply chain interruption, you've got shifts in demand, you've got shifts in the labor market, you've had this massive uh, the great resignation going on with people um, not wanting to go back to work in the same way or shifting jobs. 
Um, that at a macro level creates a really interesting challenge for them to try to understand the economy. But it's very clear that there's been a lot of demand in many areas and the supply chain constraints mean that we are seeing inflation, inflation in wages, inflation in, um, in goods. And so they have to go to their normal toolkit and we have to expect them to raise rates. And I think it's also worth recognizing that we have been living in a bit of a fantasy land for the last couple of years with the amount of money that governments and central banks around the world have pumped into their economies to keep things going. Um, that party had to end at some point and, and now seems to be that point. I mean, it, I guess the question, I don't know, I haven't really been following so much on uh, if we're making any progress on the supply side or not, but I would think that over time as, you know, this, um, you know, as this pandemic starts to hopefully settle here this year, that that supply change would level out. Uh, and uh-huh. do you do you do you feel like that's going to happen too, or is you do you feel like that's uh, not really likely to catch up, and and we need to get on top of inflation before that? Uh, well, I do, I think it's a bit of both. So I do think there will absolutely be some level of normalization, mm-hmm. uh, but there are still other issues going on with um, the issues in China, um, the relations between China and the rest of the world. Um, that's leading to some interesting dynamics in in shipping around the world. Um, and you, but you do also have countervailing factors as well because technology is driving huge productivity in many areas. It's reducing the cost of a lot of goods. Um, so you've just got these different dynamics going on. Um, I do think it, it seems sensible to withdraw the um, extra support that's been going on for the last few years. That had to normalize at some point. Um, so I do think things will settle, but I suspect we're in for a bumpy ride for another 12, 18 months. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's unusual in that uh, we, we've got, I mean, can you think of a time in your career when we've had so many different variables to deal with at the same time? I mean, the Fed is... Uh, is basically kind of making up things as they're going up, going along right now. Well, that's true. But you go back to 2008 and um, that felt a lot more confused. Um, You know, that was a, that was a truly scary time and they were making it up as they were going along then as well. Um, And in a sense uh, we're at the tail end of that period because this extra liquidity that's been pumped into the world economy really is still the legacy of 2008. Um, and I guess we're, you know, arguably 15 years later, we're finally starting to see that taper off. Let's talk a little bit about your career uh, in terms of your, you know, a lot of leadership. Um, and I guess this kind of brings us into your, the book you wrote. It's The Leadership Star. What is, what, what led you to write this book and, and tell us a little bit about it? I spent my first 10 years as a management consultant, and then I was put in to run a credit card business for a bank in Australia, and I suddenly found myself managing a 1,000 people. And I, I don't have an MBA. I wasn't trained as a leader. My first leadership job was running an ice cream shop, which I did very badly. Uh, and yeah. so I, had, I found myself having to figure this out. Yeah. And I had one idea, which was if I could get the best people in this industry to work for me and create a culture where they could be their best, then we'll probably win was my, that was my simplistic idea that took me to thinking about, okay, well, what do I need to do to get great people to want to work for me? And what is it, what's the environment that's going to make them want to 
uh, put in an extra effort. And so uh, I heard about this concept of engagement, staff engagement, and I started paying attention to it. And I asked my HR team um, who were telling me the, the, you know, they do a survey and they say, okay, well, here's your engagement score for the year. And I said, okay, that's very interesting, but what do I personally need to do? And they just looked at me and they couldn't help me. And, and that really bothered me. And so I started paying attention to other leaders, both within my company and other companies who seem to be doing a really good job at getting their people engaged, getting good people to work for them and just going, okay, what exactly are they doing? And I started paying attention to that over a series of years and making lists and, and then trying things out in my own business. And, and it started to work. And we started to have in my credit card business, really high staff engagement scores. Our profit performance was fantastic. We were the standout business in our industry, uh, in the country. Uh, And so my colleagues started saying, what are you doing? Can you come talk to my team about what you're doing? And and, uh, one day I I was asked to give this little talk. And so I, I sat down and I made a list of all the things that I had picked up. And then I thought being a good management consultant, you can't have a list with, you know, 50 things on it. So I started boiling it down and I realized that it really boiled down to five things. And so I went in and I talked to the guys about these five things and it turned out that they all started with C. And I had this little thing, which is I read a lot of books, but I often forget them as soon as I've finished. And so I had this thing about how do I make this memorable for people so that when I'm done, they can remember it. And it was for Uh me as well. You know, how do I remember what I'm doing? And I thought, okay, five things, five C's, there's five points on a star. I'll call this the leadership star. Um, and so my idea was, if I give you that visual image of a star, it's got five points and you think five points. Oh yeah, there were five C's. What were those five C's? And then you can unspin it in your head yeah. and, and use it as a reference. Yeah. Um, and so that's where it came from. And um, I mean, engagement is not the only thing that matters, obviously, in leadership. There are so many other elements of running a successful business. But in any business, small business, you know, if you're running a corner store, or you're running a big company, if you, particularly in this environment, if you can't give people emotional connection to their work, then you're going to struggle because people are going to go elsewhere. And so it felt particularly in this environment with this great resignation going on that it was worth sharing these ideas because my argument is the great resignation is really a big uh, indictment of leadership. It's saying that people aren't getting from their leaders what they need. Yeah. And, and so hopefully this will give people, this book will give people some ideas about what they need to focus on. You know, you were at one of Australia's uh, biggest banks. What, what did you learn from that experience that you can, I guess, you know, just give us an anecdote in terms of your, your book and, and how some sure. of that worked out. So where this all started for me, we had a business, we started a credit card business in Hong Kong um, back in the early 2000s. And after 18 months, the timing was terrible. Uh, That's often happens with these things. Hong Kong went into a big recession. So it's a really bad time to have a credit card business. And so we decided after trying a bunch of things to shut it down. And I sent a young woman who was working in my business in Australia up to Hong Kong to shut this business down. And a month later happened to be when the annual staff survey was done. And her results came in, and I thought they were going to be terrible, obviously, because everyone was losing their job. And she had 100% staff satisfaction in a business where everyone was about to lose their job. And so I rang her up and said, Miriam, you have 100% staff satisfaction. How's that possible? And she said, I speak to every staff member every day. And I said, okay, well, tell me about that. And she said, well, um, we're not that busy because we're in shutdown mode. So I go up to each person each day and I say, how are you? 
how's your family? How's your job hunt going? Do you need anything? And I have a conversation and I just let that conversation go as long as it needs to go. And then I go to the next person and I say, how are you? And she said, I have that conversation 35 times a day. And the next day I start all over and I do it again. And the result of that was a hundred percent staff satisfaction of people who were all losing their jobs in a recession. Mm. And, and I heard that and I just went, okay, there's something different going on uh, about leadership here that I'm not thinking about. Cause that feels completely counter to what I would expect. And the crux of it was caring for the individual. Mm -hmm. So the first C of my five C's is, is care, but specifically it's about treating people as individual human beings and making them feel that they matter, that you're interested in their success, that you want to help them do well in their own context. And I think if people genuinely believe that it's amazing what they will, what they will do. And um, just as a little sidelight on that, I, I caught up with this woman, Miriam the other day, a couple months ago, actually. And she told me that she's still in contact with all these people that she fired 20 years ago and still goes to Hong Kong to see them. They still have reunions. And, you know, just imagine you're in a business where you're shutting down a factory or you're shutting down a thing. Can you imagine that 20 years later, you'd still be in contact with those people? You know, it, it, I mean, it sounds really, really simple, but leaders often treat human, you know, we use the phrase human resources as if people are bricks you know, or, you know, or, or two by fours. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're not, they're individual human beings and you have to find ways to connect with them in that way. Probably a lot of lessons that you can apply to outside of business as well. Uh, in this book, again, it's called the leadership star. Presume it's available just about everywhere then. Brian? Yeah. Everywhere you want it. Yeah. Yep, it's so. uh, Amazon, you name it. And then you have a website. It's the leadership star.com. Uh, yep. tell us uh, what, what's on that website. Yeah. So, um, talks is basically focused on the book. And if you go on there, um, give us your email address, you get a free chapter from the book. So the first chapter gets sent to you and, and, um, you can decide whether, uh, the rest of it's worth reading. Um, so it's a freebie. Again, the website is the leadership star.com. Brian, I want to thank you for being on wealth formula podcast. Very, uh, helpful for us to all understand, uh, what's going on in the tech world and, and, and your take on the economy. That's a pleasure. And uh, look out for Before Pay coming to the U.S. soon, hopefully. Fantastic. Hopefully we won't need it, but uh, Before Pay is there. Sure you won't need it. You're actually, that's right. Your <laughs> listeners won't need it, but they might know someone who does. That's right. Um, thanks again for being on the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was a fascinating conversation. The only place I think I would say I, I don't completely agree with Brian is that he did comment on, you know, the decentralized uh, coin, you know, the Fed coins and all that kind of stuff. And we talked about it, you know, potentially being a replacement for cash. And I, I don't really see that. Again, I see that as a, and I'm not saying that I don't think cash will eventually go away. I do. But I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. And I don't think it's going to happen because of decentralized finance and because of the decentralized tokens issued by central banks. And here's why. Um, We could have made, we could have eliminated cash long ago because the vast majority of uh, money, um, M1, is not sitting in greenbacks. I mean, the, the vast majority of money uh, is uh, U.S. dollars are already in electronic form. They're just, they're in a ledger, but that ledger is not decentralized. It is a centralized ledger. 
So the argument about the U.S. dollar uh, coin and that replacing U.S. dollars doesn't exactly make sense to me. Um, I think that that's a completely different issue. And if anything, I think the the comparison um, or the threat is really to potentially credit cards and debit cards and other ways where people dis, uh, you know handle their electronic currencies. Uh, that may be something you can directly do uh, without a bank involved. Now that that's a different different concept, but that's just using technology. But uh, I don't see that as a the reason for cash uh, going away. But at any rate, I don't think that's a big focus of his anyway. But I I did want to point out that I do think that that is probably, in my opinion, not not going to be the demise of cash. Although, you know, will cash be around in 20, 30 years? Who knows? Prob- I mean, uh, no one's even talking about eliminating cash right now. That's that's the truth. I mean, if you, there's no laws, uh, there's no legislation, there's public sentiment is not about eliminating cash. In fact, the, the attempts in doing so, particularly in the Bay Area, uh, and stuff like that has been seen as racist because cash is generally used by the uh, underbanked in uh, the lower demographics. At any rate, hopefully you enjoyed this show. Again, this is Buck Joffrey from Santa Monica, California, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.